Welcome to another episode of Ordinary Old Catholic Me. I want to say that uh, last uh, Tuesday, Wednesday, or Thursday, I was rummaging through the net and ran across the announcement of the beatification of a boy named Carlo Acutis. He was born in 1991 and died of leukemia fairly quickly in 2006. In the last several episodes of this podcast, either I or the guests have talked in particular about the Eucharist, as well as in our last two episodes about how to develop a personal relationship with our Lord. Somehow, I didn't think it was coincidental that I ran across this boy. It isn't just that I and others have been talking about it for this program, but for me personally, for a variety of reasons, the need to direct myself a bit differently, not to say that I have not practiced my faith, but to direct myself in a more focused way towards the center of my faith in a way that in many ways has eluded me despite my practice suddenly has become very, very important to me. I'm surprised by it, but I haven't had this much of an intense response to someone on the road to sainthood at this point, blessed Carlo, in a very long time. I have several favorites, as you probably know, some whom I've mentioned on this program. People like uh, Fulton Sheen and John Henry Newman. But Carlo surprises me because, well, first of all, I'm a lot older than he would be even today, which would be between 28 and 29 years old had he lived. And clearly my life experiences have been utterly different from his short experiences in life. The intellectual, the doubter, the constant doubter that I am, is, was, a little suspicious of someone so young with so little experience being so quickly on the road to sainthood, particularly where some of those favorites that I mentioned, uh, Fulton Sheen being one, has been so delayed along the road to sainthood compared to him. So here are the key things about him that I have read. He was born in London when his parents were living there, but grew up in Milan, Italy. He received his first Holy Communion at the age of seven, despite the fact that his family set him on the road to Catholicism. It really wasn't they who caused him to be immersed in Catholicism. It was he who brought them back to the faith, particularly his mother. As soon as he received communion that first time, he became attached to receiving our Lord in Mass every day. He became a catechist at the age of 11. He believed in the transformative nature of the Eucharist, that by receiving our Lord daily, he would become the Lord like the Lord, become so close to him as to be in union with him. I never heard any particular video in which he speaks, so I don't know what his voice sounded like or if there is anything with his voice, but the videos of him show a very normal boy who played, was athletic, wore ordinary clothes, jeans, and athletic gear, and was particularly attached, as people of his generation, to the 
use of the computer. In fact, he was very skilled at it. He combined that skill of use of the computer with his love of the Eucharist by creating a website that was in many languages, in fact, it still exists today, of the rather large number of Eucharistic miracles. What's a Eucharistic miracle? This is where the host, which is consecrated by the priest, takes on physical characteristics of the human heart and blood. Very often it happens where the consecrating priest is having trouble with his own belief in the transubstantiation. This, I believe, was true of the one at Lancio. So Carlo wanted to make the many Eucharistic miracles known to people, particularly at a time in our society where Catholics, who are supposed to believe in the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Christ, don't. The doubter in me, as I said, wonders whether or not it is possible that a 15-year-old boy in these days could possibly have been that holy. And part of my suspicion is that there's need for someone that young to approach the unbelief that is particularly prevalent among young people. Of course, like the rest of us, he was a sinner, but his sins are not particularly discussed in any of the narratives that I read about. Not that I have a prurient interest in his sins, but it would help me a little bit, I suppose, the suspicious part of me, to know just how real he was compared to other kids. He is being sort of pronounced as the potential saint of the internet. The internet is too often a place of sordid things. So the idea that someone used it for such high things, for the good of the Lord, for the glory of God, and for the enhancement of humanity, makes him very attractive. Could he indeed be real, truly, someone that is that good? My intellectual suspicions are countered by the reality of my own life that in at least one case, I knew someone, also no longer with us, who, though not particularly religious as a Catholic, was, to my observation and in my interactions, about as close to a saint as anyone I have ever met. There are people who are given a particular grace to connect with others to be the person to whom others go when they have their own troubles, perhaps because the other sees the woundedness of the person whom they approach, but the sense that that person has somehow transcended the trouble. They seem to be touched by God, even if they themselves aren't truly aware of it. We've all met people in our lives, not many, I'm sure, and we say to ourselves, there's something about him or her, something different from the rest of us. When you read about the saints, the one thing you can come to is that the root to sainthood is about as individual as the number of human beings on the face of the earth, past, present, and future. Some, as apparently is true of Carlos Acutis, get it right away. It's almost as if the sainthood is baked into the person. 
by God's creation. I'm reading this book that was suggested to me actually by Barbara McNeish in our last interview, and that is He and I by a woman named Gabrielle Bosis. It's just a book of a series of alleged locutions between Gabrielle and the Lord. Much like how people become or are saints, one can look at this book and say, well, you know, she was imagining her discussions with the Lord. But again, just as in my finding Carlos Ocutis, in my finding this book, there's something that is so compelling that it feels as if it is as real as anything could be. In the book, in fact, one of the locutions, the Lord says something along the lines of, let me do your thinking for you. Just drift with me. Just abandon yourself to me. Well, apparently, Gabrielle did just that. And in looking at the life, the short life of this Carlos Ocutis, it seems that almost naturally, without all the obstacles that the rest of us have, perhaps because he was like a child, because he was a child, more open to the stirrings of God, he drifted along with God's will. Some saints fight the problem. People like Augustine, who led a life of dissolution before he finally accepted God's will and allowed God to think for him, to guide him. But that was his mission. His life of dissolution stands as a kind of buoy for others who live that type of life and presents the possibility God's great grace, if accepted, that such a life can be turned around and be gone. Carlos's route seems to have been more simple and direct. God used him in exactly the way he wished to use him. His devotion to the Eucharist translated into the dissemination of the reality of Eucharistic miracles. Now, I said earlier, and I realized I wasn't entirely clear that in the many Eucharistic miracles, the consecrated host takes on human heart tissue and human blood. What I didn't say, although it might be implicit, was that the blood is AB, which is the same as on the Shroud of Turin, and that, of course, the heart is exactly what was pierced by the lance at Calvary. The other thing about the heart tissue is that incredibly, miraculously, it is always living. It is not dead heart tissue. It's alive. After I began recording this podcast, I actually was on, I think it was EWTN, and I saw that the exhibits of this boy, Carlos Acutis, have actually come to the United States so far from Italy. His work, his website work, has moved all over the world, and so is making people aware of the Eucharist in a way that perhaps they have not been before, in a way that books would not make possible because people don't necessarily pick up a single book about Eucharistic miracles. But here's a boy whose use of the internet sweeps the facts of Eucharistic miracles across the world. The other thing is that I saw on this EWTN program that 
when he was beatified, which was only about a week ago now, less than a week ago, his life and beatification and death brought him to the attention of so many young people. And as I said earlier, this is something of which the church, perhaps the entire society, is sorely in need. It is possible to be a follower of Christ, a follower of the Trinity, and still be someone who enjoys the world which has been given to us, but enjoys it in a pure and uncomplicated way. He also stands for the proposition that life is indeed short and that it is necessary, it is God's plan, that we pack as much into our lives, however long or short in their very shortness, in a span of, if we're lucky, 78 years, that we use that time in a way that means something, that isn't just about sex, drugs, and rock and roll, all of which simply dissipate and leave us completely empty. Funny how I fight with my idea of saints. And even now, as I've said, all these things that are positive about Carlo, there's a little part of me that says, well, I don't entirely trust it because the reason that he has been declared a saint is because there have been men and some women, I suppose, who have decided that he is so. And of course, they have found that there have been some miracles, I believe one or two, I always forget how many are needed to be a blessed, and that uh, one of the miracles, which was also a Eucharistic miracle, happened pretty soon after his death. But there's a part of me that resists it because I feel, I don't know if it's badly, for those people who will never be declared saints that no one will ever know of. I ran across this locution in the book by Gabriel Bosis, and it was for the year 1940, April 9th, and the Lord presumably said to her, don't think a saint must appear saintly in the eyes of men. He has his outward nature, but it is the inner nature that counts. There is fruit whose rough, even thorny skin gives no inkling of its sweet and juicy taste. That's how it is for my saints. Their value is in their hearts. As I said earlier, I've known someone who I felt was saintly, and that person would laugh at it, of course, but I really believe that. And probably the people who had been around him or her know that, felt it, were certain of it, but the world at large will never know about it. Actually, as I'm speaking, I can think of at least two other people who arguably would fit the denomination of sainthood, but after our deaths, no one will ever think of them again as a model for sanctity. And then I think, regarding Carlo, and perhaps regarding others, that the outward nature that men see and the inner nature that exists sometimes are both visible at the same time. And perhaps that makes them special saints or special models for the rest of us. Whether declared or not, the people that I see as saints are those who are so ordinary that they give me hope that I too can one day be a saint. Why should I want to be a saint? Well, that's the point of why I'm so focused on this kid, because I don't know if he said to himself, I want to be a saint, but what he did want 
and it was clear by the fact that he almost plucked himself out of a society that is nihilistic. I mean, after all, he died in 2006. That's not that long ago. Is that he wanted to be God's friend, the, the friend of Jesus Christ. And that has been the focus of, of several of these podcasts, not necessarily by my own making, just sort of sort of gone along that way. And I've been feeling as if God has been telling me, as he told Gabriel Bosis, as he apparently told this boy, that I need to drift with him, let him guide me. I am far, far from allowing that to happen. Somewhere along the line, perhaps just living in this world, I got the idea that I control what happens, when of course I know I control nothing. But still I act as if I have some, not a right, but obligation to control the circumstances around me, which is impossible. Where could I possibly have gotten that idea? Although God has reminded me throughout my life that I don't have control and that I should depend on him, I haven't done that, not in any meaningful way. Something about the unpleasantness of the COVID lockdown, something about beginning this podcast in May during the lockdown, something about discovering some of the people or knowing some of the people that I have interviewed, something about the books that I have been led to, something about everything that's happening is starting, I say starting, to wake me up to the simple truth of God that I have made incredibly complicated by my own hand. When Carlo was diagnosed with leukemia, a very virulent leukemia in about October 2006, and went into the hospital, he knew he wasn't coming out. He told his mother he wasn't coming out, and yet he was at complete peace. Right now, this past week, and probably going forward for another week or two, there's a lot of debate about the word handmaiden. It's looked upon as some kind of despicable position because we judge everything in this society by this society, not by how things have been done in the past or what might be otherwise true despite how we do things in this time. When Mary was told that her cooperation in the work of salvation was being requested by virtue of her becoming the mother of God, Theotokos, she said, Behold the handmaiden of the Lord, let it be done to me according to thy word. She let God do the thinking, and her cooperation was key in the ability of God to join back the relationship between man and God. She just went with God's flow without regard to what the outcome might be entrusted. When Carla went into the hospital, of course I wasn't there, I don't know, but if in fact he was at peace, as it sounds as if he were, what would you call him? Not a handmaiden, obviously, a servant, an attendant of God, who cooperated with God's work for him, and who was at complete peace, even if the outcome was death itself, because he knew what death meant for him and for the rest of the world if we embrace the concept of salvation and the idea of paradise. We in this society don't like the word servant. Handmaid suggests a servant, 
servant suggests servant, attendant suggests servant. But in the old catechism, what did we say about our role in life? To know, to love, and to serve God in this life, and to be with him forever in the next. What's wrong with letting God be in charge? If he is the creator of the universe, what's bad about it? It's actually wonderful. The idea of my not having to do all the thinking and solve all the problems. Not to say that I don't have obligations and, and things I must do in this life and to perform for the purposes of God's will and his mission for me, but that I don't have to be the one sort of orchestrating it all. I'm just doing what he asks of me. What a relief. Why do I need to be in charge? To be the servant of the God who created the universe. Well, that seems kind of a peaceful thing. Yeah, so this Carlo Acutis has gotten my attention. Someone so young can teach someone so much older. Blessed Carlo Acutis, pray for me, pray for us. That ends another episode of Ordinary Old Catholic Me. Stay tuned for some more solo episodes and hopefully in the next weeks some interviews with other interesting ordinary Catholics.